our Father. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand. Lord, your Son is our shepherd. He will call us, we will come, and we have eternal life in him. And God, we give you thanks. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we open your word that we would listen and have peace because your wrath has been satisfied once and for all in Christ alone. And so, Lord, enable us to hear your word this morning. Please, God, enable me to preach for your name's sake, for your glory, for the hope and joy and peace of your people, for the salvation of those that don't know you. I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and enable us to hear. And this I ask in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. I... um, I didn't realize it wasn't intentional, but I am wearing Mountaineer colors this morning. Just thought I'd mention that. And uh, so, <laughs> but I'd like to start out with a Buckeye story. So, <laughs> no, seriously, I I remember. I think in my lifetime, at least that I can remember, back in 2002, was the first time I think the Buckeyes played for a national championship and I remember watching that game with some friends they weren't favored to win and they won they beat Miami they weren't favored when they played Oregon in 2015 they won again and when I watched those games in real time I remember both very distinctly I was frantic to my shame I was frantic for at least three hours three straight hours every play you know I was on my feet I paced I got frustrated with every punt, with every stalled drive. I jumped and I shouted at every score. I got mad every time the other team scored. But when those games were over, when they were over, I bought the special edition DVDs that recapped those particular seasons. And they showed the games in their entirety. They showed those national championship games in their entirety. And watching those games after I knew the outcome was a completely different experience. I could just lay back and enjoy it, and I did. And and even when the other team succeeded, even when the other team scored or stopped a drive, or it was almost fun to watch it because when they would celebrate, I could laugh because I knew the outcome. I knew what was going to happen. I knew that the outcome of the game was unchangeable. It couldn't be taken back. It couldn't be undone. And it was wonderful to just be able to do that, and I still do it. I mean, I... I still watch those games. I don't know if we'll ever play for another national championship in my lifetime, but um, it's, it's a riot to watch them now. And, and when you look at this text this morning, when you look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul is playing a DVD for us. Paul's reminding us of some things. He's pulling the camera all the way back to let us see reality as it truly is. Even though... Evil increases every day, beloved. Even though suffering and trouble abound, and every week there are names and needs, for example, to add to our prayer list, even in all of that, even though the prince of the power of the air is still scheming against us all the time, God has decreed once and for all who is in charge. And God has promised, and it cannot be undone, that everything... Everything wrong, everything fractured, everything broken will be made right. And that is the defense now and forever 
against everything that is false, against all false teaching, against all the lies that we can hear and be told. This is the strategy, in fact. Verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 don't look like a strategy, but that's what they are. Paul is being very intentional here. This is the strategy to fight false teaching. Gospel-centered perspective. Christ-centered perspective. Gospel lenses. That's what Paul is giving us in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. And so Paul proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the means and the goal of God's creation and is the one through whom God will reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to himself. And so Jesus Christ alone this morning, Jesus Christ alone must be given the preeminence in all things, beloved, including our church and including our lives. So now may we hear and believe God's word together. Let's begin at verse 15 of chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. This is Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is probably the most stacked presentation of the greatness of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. It may have been at one time, we're not sure, but it may have been an early hymn in the church, but it is six verses of unbroken, unrivaled glory. There are no commands here. There are no counsel, no counsels. There is only the declaration, the, the declaration that Jesus Christ is not only the creator of everything, but He is the goal of everything. He is what everything is moving towards. He is the sustainer of everything. He's literally holding everything together in Himself. So He is not only cosmically magnificent, Jesus Christ is personally present. We have to remember... These verses have a context. They have a context. They they aren't just here because they're true. They're here because for the situation in Colossae and the situation we face, they are terrifically relevant all the time. The greatness of Jesus is meant here to stretch our little minds, to become the thing, the thing that shapes all of our thinking And if by God's Holy Spirit the eyes of our hearts were open this morning and we could at least begin to truly understand what is being said here, we would never again go to anyone or anything else to find meaning, to find hope, to find answers, or to find peace. Paul is continuing on with his proclamation from verses 13 and 14. He's expanding the truth about Jesus for the church in Colossae, the beloved Son of God, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. So He's not only a real and sufficient and personal Savior of sinners, this Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 refer to him as the exact imprint of God's nature. The very radiance of God's glory. Jesus himself said that if you'd seen him, you had seen the Father. Jesus is literally the exegesis of God. Jesus is God explained in person. And he isn't just a static representation of him. Not that kind of image. He is the active revelation of what God is actually like. If we want to know, if we're ever asking God, what are you like? We look at Jesus and we have the answer in perfection, in totality, in completion all the time. All the time. He is the firstborn of all creation, the text says. That's a phrase that speaks of priority and place. So Jesus is not the first being that was created. Jesus was never created. That's the point of the text. He's the God who was made human flesh and therefore among creation is the most important and significant person. That's how he is the firstborn. He's the highest one. Watch the flow of the text here as we look through it. By him, through him, for him, in him, in him, and then again through him. It's just stacked full of Jesus. By him, the text says, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All of it. Whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him. We might say, well, I thought God created the heavens and the earth. He did. God the Son, God in the person of His Son, Jesus, the Word of God personified, the exact imprint and image of God in His nature, is the agent through which God created all things. Jesus is doing the creative work in Genesis. Did you know that? It was Him. That's the one that came and walked among us. The one that literally made us. So it's, it's a beautiful mystery. As God the Father was speaking what we read in Genesis 1, the creating word was Jesus. Jesus even created the invisible spirit world. Jesus made all of it. Did you know that? He, he made all the angels. All the order that exists in the heavenly realms. Authority itself was created by Jesus. Dominion all by and through Jesus. By Him, through Him, and the text says, for Him. Now that phrase changes everything in the world. Everything in the world finds its place in that phrase. All of it. For Him. Did you know that the universe... And the invisible spiritual realms, the cosmos, and everything seen and unseen inside it. Matter, immaterial, black holes and planets, stars and quasars, houseflies and people, all of it made for Jesus. Government, order, gravity, trees, oceans, mountaineers and buckeyes, all of it for Him. For him. You see how that gives every single thing created the exact same purpose and goal? Jesus. The purpose of everything is Jesus. That's why everything exists. It exists for the Son. Everything is moving towards Jesus and always has been, including you and I, including Moundsville, including our church. I think gravitational pull exists in the physical world 
to be a constant reminder deep down in our souls that there is something greater and more powerful and more important than us that is constantly pulling us towards itself and there's nothing we can do about it. And it is Jesus. He is before all things, the text says. Before all things. Jesus is the beginning. Everything comes from Him and in Him. In Him. It's where everything is. In Him, all things hold together. The verb there is perfect tense. It's a perfect tense verb. So, from before the dawn of time, down through every age, into the future and beyond it to eternity, and in this very moment, Jesus Christ always has, is, and always will continue to hold all things together. Beloved, apart from the continuous sustaining activity of Jesus Christ alone. Apart from that, everything would disintegrate. Everything. If Jesus blinked in that role for a second, the earth would immediately spin off its axis and go plunging into the sun, if there was still a sun. He is holding the breath we are breathing. Every inhale, every exhale, every exhale takes place in Him right now. Right now. We are speaking this morning of unlimited strength and power. Unlimited. And that's the one that gave up his life and was nailed to a tree. That's the one. If Jesus would have breathed it all those years ago in Jerusalem, if he would have breathed it, and he could have, a legion of the host of heaven would have disintegrated Jerusalem in that moment and reduced it to less than ash, beloved. They were crucifying this. Imagine the wherewithal and the power and the sustaining control of Jesus to allow himself to endure that in that moment, to take that. Imagine how solid inside he must be. He holds together every single nanosecond of created existence. All of it. Worship Him. Stand in awe of Him. Just stand in awe of Him for ten seconds. All the noise, just let it cease in the world and in our lives. He is, He was, He always will be. Paul describes... Christ's blazing supremacy in creation here in four ways in verses 15 through 17. He's the firstborn, which again, he has the highest honor. He's the most important of creation. He is the creator of creation. He is the goal of creation. And he is the sustainer of creation. And He made everything. And this is the one in verse 18 that is the head of the body, the church. Now that begins or should begin to put church into perspective because we are filled, every church, every church and every person in church has an agenda. This is where the agenda should come from. This is the agenda that owns all the other agendas, that all the other agendas get swallowed up into because the one we just read about, he's the head of the church. He's the head of the body. This is where then all of us from pastor to Sunday school teacher to janitor to child to teenager to adult to deacon to committee chair to board member we cover our mouths 
We sit at his feet. We behold his glory and we listen. We listen. The head of the church, the one who created the church, sustains the church, leads the church, is none other than the one through whom God created everything and for whom everything that exists in the church was created in the first place. Beloved, we are owned and ruled by the very image of God himself in this place. He sees every meeting. He hears every conversation. He guides every service. He owns every soul in His church, wherever it exists, among every tribe, language, people, and nation on the earth. We bow down before Him or we are Antichrist. Those are the options. Where it is forgotten even for a second that Jesus Christ is the single head of His church, we are trifling with power and will we cannot imagine and cannot contain. But what is also at the same time beautifully encouraging, strengthening, and perspective-shaping to think about this morning. No wonder the church has endured and will endure. No wonder the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. No wonder the church is still being built by redeemed sinners and train wrecks and yet cannot be defeated. What makes us, what guides and sustains us, what makes our rescue and delivery from the domain of darkness certain for all eternity is the fact that it has been accomplished by God through none other than the one who is the Lord of the universe. That's why this holds together. He is the beginning, the text says. Jesus Christ started everything. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the highest among the new creation. He's the first to irrevocably conquer the grave by rising from the dead. The text says that in everything, He might be preeminent. The reason everything was created for Jesus was so that Jesus, even in creation, would always retain the place of first importance, supreme value, and highest honor. All that exists, exists so that Jesus Christ might be preeminent. Nothing that exists, beloved, nothing that exists, then, exists to make us look great or primary. This is the predicament of humankind. We think everything exists, including other people, to make us look great. That's why we fight. That's why there's no peace. Because we have it twisted who the preeminent one is. And the one for whom everything was made and for whom everything exists. Jesus' is image, firstborn, creator, goal, before all things, Sustainer of all things, the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, for one reason, that he and no one and nothing else, therefore, might be preeminent. Forget for one second, then. Forget for one second, if we can, our obsession today with how evil and rotten the fallen world is. Why are we so obsessed with the evil of the world? It's the world. That's what's going to happen. Why are we so obsessed with what's wrong with other people? Let's forget that for a second. Let's forget how easily it is that we notice how other people are dishonoring God. Let's just stop that for a minute and ask ourselves an honest question. Beyond the words that we say, 
beyond the words that we say, if someone were to look at our lives, would they believe that we believe Jesus Christ is absolutely, constantly preeminent? So let's forget about how other people dishonor God. If we're going to be worried about something, why don't we mind our own backyard first? Do we live all the time like Jesus Christ is absolutely preeminent? If someone were to look at our lives, would they be able to say, they believe that Jesus Christ is everything? And as you feel the weight of the answer that I hope, if you're honest with yourself, is no, I don't. As you feel the weight of it, understand that that weight carries with it grace and love and mercy to forgive us for dishonoring Him. Nobody lives like this. Nobody lives that way. Nobody sees Jesus as that big to the extent that it affects every second of our lives. We are never without the need for a Savior, beloved. Ever. Ever. Do our lives display? Do our words display? Do our social media posts display? that we believe Jesus is what anyone and everyone ought to be talking about. And why, in verse 19, should Jesus be preeminent? Why? Because in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now that's amazing. It pleases the God who is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, It pleases Him that where this one God who is three can be seen and made known and worshipped and revealed is in the Son, in Jesus. You cannot, beloved, we cannot dishonor the Father or the Spirit by making much of the Son because the Godhead dwells completely in the Son and is pleased to do so. That's what the God who is three in one wants and takes joys in, takes joy in. All eyes fixed on the Son. In verses 19 through 20, it pleases God that all the fullness of God resides in the Son, and it pleases God to reconcile everything to Himself through the Son. All the things on earth, all the things in heaven. Jesus is the exclusive instrument through whom God created the universe in verses 15 through 17 and is the exclusive instrument through whom God is in the process of pacifying the universe and bringing it back to Himself in verses 18 through 20. The agent and the goal of God's creation is the one through whom God reconciles all creation back to Himself. Now how does God do that? How does God take everything wrong and rebellious and broken and less than Him? How does God precisely do this reconciling act? How will peace finally come? Through what? What instrument will God use? The cross. The cross where His Son bled and died. That's the text. So, do you see then how the truth of the gospel is the hinge on which all creation turns? It's not just this little formula that ends up in the periphery about how you get saved. The gospel is how you stay saved. 
The gospel is the way you interpret the entire created order. It's how you make sense of anything and everything. The cross. The cross. How will all our suffering and pain find relief through the cross? How will God answer all the whys that we ask through the cross? How will our relationships be mended through the cross? How will God mend the brokenness and the chaos and the disorder in our world through the cross? God has one answer for all those questions. How will God make everything right? How will God make, as as C.S. Lewis said, everything sad come untrue? How will God do that? Through the cross. Because that is where the Creator and the Sustainer and the goal of everything that exists was crucified. If He is the one then who is doing the reconciling work, all things will be reconciled. Bank on it. This is the song of Jesus. The first and the foremost. Now, how do these verses then contribute to the purpose for which Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians? And again, I think the purpose of Paul's letter was to tell these believers that Maturity and assurance are the result of an ever-increasing knowledge of this Jesus and what he has accomplished. Listen, let's put that picture together. Listen to Paul speak. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1 if you have your Bible open. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Look at 2.2 that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Look at 4.12. I love to hear those pages turn, by the way. That's a beautiful sound. Look Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You just see it. That's Paul's purpose for writing this letter. In 129, this is what Paul toils and struggles to convince them of with all the energy that God works within him. So how do verses 15 and 20 this declaration of the supremacy and superiority of Jesus contribute to that goal? How are they a means to that end? They don't come off right away as something practical. They come off with something purely theological. And for whatever reason, we take things that are purely theological and place them outside the realm of practical. How are they a means to that end? Because they are, beloved. They are. Paul does not waste space. I think the first way to answer that question, how do these things contribute to that goal, is to remember that Paul is writing to undo and to fight the arguments and propositions of some false teachers in Colossae. And I think verses 15 through 20 are the introduction, if you will, to how Paul is going to fight that false teaching. Again, it's hard to say exactly what that false teaching was, but I think that makes it even more important. Especially, if I can say that, for us now. 
false teaching is not always a proper noun or a coherent system. It's not always something you can label and put outside of us and see it from a distance so that we'll know when it's coming. It's easy to fight an enemy when they're all wearing shirts that say enemy. That's not the way false teaching will usually work. False teaching is always a threat. And it's more of a threat when we don't realize that's what it is. When those things take root in us, we get poisoned by them. So it's, it's almost better for us that we can't say, well, yeah, this is that. And since we don't deal with that, we don't have to really worry about Colossians. Beloved, we are under the threat of false teaching all the time. I hate to say this, but you are under the threat of false teaching every Sunday. I could teach what is false to delude you and poison you and hurt you. Like, I, that could happen. I don't plan on it, for crying out loud. But I mean, we're under the threat of it all the time. Every time we sit in a Bible study, every time we turn on our TVs, and, and I don't want to make everybody paranoid and freaking out, we just, there's a way to make sure we don't get overtaken by these things. And verses 15 through 20 are Paul saying, this is where you start. This is where you start. False teaching is usually effective and pervasive because it doesn't look false on the surface. Again, false teachers are normally smart. You, you start with sounding right. You know, you don't start off by saying, now listen, I, I, one of the funniest things I ever heard, I, I, um, this is totally random, but I was sitting, listening to a sermon one time, and the guy read the text, and he said, now, what I'm gonna preach is not what this text means. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks for giving me the heads up on that so that I would know everything that's about to follow is worthless. Thank you for that. That's great. What we can know about this teaching from this text, if, if we look at this as Paul's polemic, his, his defense against this inward issue, what we can know about it by looking here is that the false teaching obviously downplayed the supremacy of Jesus in some way. Thinking Jesus was no more than a beginning point, probably to go on to a more enlightened spiritual maturity. Now to do that, to get the more enlightened spiritual maturity that the false teachers were saying you could have, you were going to have to buy what they were selling. You're going to have to follow their rules and their practices. And the fact we know from the beginning of chapter 1 that the Colossians were a people so positively affected, at least initially, by the gospel, means that false teaching must have made it seem like they valued Christ, the, the false teachers. It, 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 they wouldn't have bought it if it came off right away as absolute garbage. Jesus became peripheral over time. And so maybe, if we look at what Paul said here, maybe they saw Jesus as a created being, just a really high-ranking angel. Beloved, that's still with us. This is the, that's Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Paul will go on to talk of philosophy and empty deceit in his text. It's a human tradition, which we don't think of as false teaching, but it is human tradition. We do it because that's the way we've always done it. We do it because that's what we're comfortable with. We do it because that's what we like. That is anti-gospel. It's anti-gospel. Paul will call it out. Human tradition. Asceticism, he says. We think asceticism is a good thing. Not when it comes to Christ and the gospel. Not when it comes to the health of the church. Obviously, mixed in with it, we can tell is also some sort of Judaism or Jewish teaching. He talks about 
Sabbath observances and speculation about angels, celestial beings. So it has this Hellenistic kind of Greek Jewish roots to it. And, and that, that kind of teaching is always a threat. Again, we will always be tempted to think, isn't it a little too presumptuous and arrogant to claim we know the source of absolute truth? Right? That's going to constantly be a temptation. How do we know that other people aren't right and we are right? And now culture and the media and art and all these outlets are telling you how evil that is from their perspective. And so now what is valued is, is, is if your spirituality, which is the new word, is just religious. So you take from all these different religions all the good things about them and you have this kind of composite of what it really means to be spiritually enlightened and mature. The problem with it are Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Like that, there's one way to see things. It's not right because the Christians say it's right. It's right because Jesus says it's right. And there's a huge difference. The response to that kind of thinking might at least begin to explain the points that Paul is specific to make in verses 15 through 20. He's making it clear that there is one source of truth, one source of meaning, one person on whom all focus and worship and praise and hope are meant to be placed. So immediately, with no apology... He goes right after the exclusivity and the supremacy of Jesus Christ as the very image of God Himself, creator of everything, including all spiritual forces, the head of the church, preeminent in everything. Whatever the false teaching was exactly, it should at least be clear to us that it not only questioned Christ's exclusive ability to provide spiritual maturity and assurance, but in doing so, was questioning the exclusive role of supremacy and importance of Jesus in everything. So what Paul is showing us in kind of a roundabout way is that the minute Christ is relegated to another piece of the puzzle on the road to spiritual enlightenment, he is completely degraded. You can't do that to him. You can't put the person, verses 15 through 20 are talking about, in any place but the highest and most meaningful and influential one. And if the world, if the false teachers around them were telling these believers that, listen, since the universe is filled with all kinds of spiritual forces, we need to take all of them into account in order to grow or mature or have security. If that's what they're hearing, nothing could be more important for Paul than to pull the camera back and let everything be seen through the lens of the one who made everything, sustains everything, and for whom everything was made that was made in the first place. Paul's argument is airtight. I love Paul. That's why my little boy's middle name is Paul. Paul's argument is that he's giving a complete picture of reality as something that has its focal point, its overarching narrative in Jesus Christ alone. Just Him. By Him. Through Him. For Him. In Him. All in the text. Image. Firstborn. Creator. First. Sustainer. Head, beginning, resurrected, preeminent, fullness, reconciler, peacemaker, Savior, all Him in the text. Jesus reveals, He creates, He holds together, He rules over, He reconciles, He makes peace. 
He is sufficient to reveal God to us. Who else is more able to show us what God is like? Paul is asking. He is powerful enough to create all things. Who else has that kind of power? He is what everything has been created for. Who else is that important? He is before all things. Who else existed before time and everything began? In Him everything is held together. Who else, what other power can sustain the universe? See how high Paul goes to combat what they're seeing at the street level? He is before all things. In Him everything is held together. Who else can sustain the universe? He is the head of the church. Who else is fit to lead and to teach us? He is the beginning of everything. Who else is the source of everything that exists? He is the firstborn from the dead. Who else was able to completely conquer the grave? He is preeminent in everything. Who else always has the ultimate place of honor? All things are reconciled through Him. Who else can take everything and make it right? He makes peace by the blood of His cross. Who else's blood can heal the universe? Just His. Beloved, just Him. Just Jesus. All day, every day. Just Him. This is God's beloved Son. This is our Redeemer, beloved, who forgives our sins. He is, verses 15 through 20, cosmically magnificent, personally present. This is Jesus for us. Beloved, here's why this matters. In the person of Jesus, the questions we're asking are answered. The needs we have are met. Look at these verses. Who else could it be? Who else could it be? Seeing Jesus as He is will protect us from false teaching. It will. Seeing Jesus as He is will guard us from a dumbed-down version that reduces Him to an important piece rather than the whole puzzle and the reason for which the puzzle exists in the first place. That's why it matters. And here's what it means for you and I, then, Moundsville Baptist Church, that all this is true. Jesus Christ alone must be given the preeminence in all things, including our church and our lives. He already has it. The question is, do we live and believe like it is true? Like it matters all the time? If everything was not just created by and through Him, but for Him, we must live completely for Him. That's the implication of the text. Any other reason for living, then? Every other reason for living. I want to be rich. I want to be beautiful. I want to be accepted. I want to be wise. I want to be great. All those things ultimately are irrational if verses 15 through 20 are true. It's not just that it's wrong and idolatrous. It's irrational to live for anything other than Jesus. And when we hear that, what we need to understand is that that's not a challenge. 
I'm not challenging us this morning to walk out of this room and start to live like we think this is true. That's law, and that will kill you. And it will kill me. That's not the point of all this, beloved. This Jesus is sovereign over creation, over us, over our church. Therefore, He must have the supremacy. He must have the honor. He must have the preeminence 24-7, every second. Who is sufficient to live like they honor such greatness. We can't do it. Did you understand that what God demands is impossible to provide from here? We need somebody to reconcile us back to the Father because we can't do this. And lo and behold, what does He do? What does He do? Well, he reconciles. He reconciles. The way the head of the church shapes us and bends us to live for him is by filling our hearts and minds again and again and again with the truth of who he is and what he has accomplished for us. Everyone's task here on the earth is to clear everything out of the way that would keep anyone else from seeing Jesus. Look to Christ this morning, beloved. Look to Christ. Don't go out and try to live completely for Him. That's why He died on the cross, because we can't. We can't meet that kind of supremacy and honor with effort and willpower and grit. We will eat the fruit every single time. We need saved. And the first thing God does when we blew it in the garden is show up and cover them with the sacrificial coat of another animal. Showing us from the word go, I am going to heal. I am going to make it right. By the skin of another. The whole message of the Bible is reconciliation. That's what everything is telling us. That's what all that stuff in Leviticus and Numbers that can be so hard to weed through is telling us. God is saying, look, do you want to be perfect and you want to be clean? It's going to look like this. And then you, the weight of that kills you and it makes you sin more. And so He sends a Savior and He reconciles. This is not a challenge to live right. It's a, I'm begging you to be reconciled to Him through Christ. He saved us from our inability to give Him the honor and preeminence only He deserves. Jesus saves us from that. Only Jesus can satisfy God. Only Jesus can satisfy God. And He's done it on our behalf for sinners. You, you, you run to Him. That's the application point of every sermon. Run to Christ. Look to Christ. This is the truth of who He is and what He's done. That's the truth that lifts us up and points us homeward and has the power. Remember, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And he who begins that work will complete that work. I'm not called to complete it. I'm called to believe it and be reconciled. 
False teaching will always try to get us to believe we're capable of finding our own salvation. The minute something or someone tells you that the power is in you, you run. Run from it. It's evil, and I don't care who's saying it. Only Jesus has the power to forgive us. Only Jesus has the power to reconcile us to the God we have denied and devalued and do all the time. This is the hope that sets us free. This is the hope that grows us. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't. The one in verses 15 through 20, He is true north. He is true north. He's the way home. Look to Christ. Look to the greatness of Christ. And be made whole, beloved. Be made whole. We're going to pray. We'll sing a hymn of invitation. I'll be here in the front. If any of you need to come and pray, if any of you need to know Jesus better or for the first time, I'll be here down front. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the perfection and supremacy and glory and sufficiency and beauty and wonder and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, grant us to take this morning from the bread of life and be satisfied. I pray that for everyone in this room, including myself. Please, Lord God, give us more of your Son. Let us see more clearly, understand a little bit better, know a little bit more all the time. All the rivers converge in Christ. Let us know it and believe it and rest in it. Have your way among every person seated in this room in the balcony here and on the floor this morning, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.